But we are in Romans 6, 1 through 11. Romans 6. And what Paul does in his letter to the Romans is starts to now talk about what about sin? What about sin? For those who have been following the going through Romans, I think we're on our 11th or 12th sermon right now in Romans. Uh, we've talked about how we are forgiven from our sins, saved by Jesus, declared righteous in his sight, and we receive that by faith. And then last week, we looked at how we are no longer in Adam, this fallen, sinful, condemned humanity. We've been put in Christ. So what about sin? <laughs> what about sin? Uh, sin originally meant to miss the mark. If you were shooting an arrow and you didn't hit what you were hitting, you have sinned. You didn't hit the mark that you were trying to hit. But many words are used to describe it. Transgression, um, trespasses, debts. Like when we say the Lord's Prayer, right? The Our Father, some trans- translated trespasses, some debts. All are saying the same general idea. When we are in rebellion, treachery, treason against God. And if we were once in Adam, and, and being in Adam meant you're under sin, it leads to death and condemnation, and we've been transferred out of Adam and now put in Christ, that's what we looked at last week, declared righteous, given the gift of eternal life, well, what would that mean for our sin? Do we still sin if we're no longer in Adam? And we all know the answer to that question from our own practice every day. And I would say that there's no easy solution to that question, no easy sort of application, but Romans does give us a clear, simple answer. We're dead to sin and now alive in Christ. Look with me at 6, 1 through 11. We're going to take our time getting through chapter 6, probably two or three sermons through it, um, but we're just going to do verses 1 through 11 this morning. We have died to sin in Jesus Christ. You can look with me at your own Bible or on the screen um, as we cover Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, and may God add his blessing to the reading and application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. So we have died to sin in Christ. First, death to sin because of grace. Because of grace. Verses 1 and 2. Then death to sin as shown in baptism. Verses 3 through 5. Death to sin gives us freedom. 
6 to 7, and finally, death to sin in union with Christ. In union with Christ. One of the most amazing and blessed truths of the Christian faith, our unity with Christ. But first, death to sin because of grace. Paul asks the question, what now? If we are no longer in Adam, we're in Christ, what now? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? We already have established that before coming to Christ, we certainly lived in sin, under God's wrath and judgment, but continually turning away from him to idolatry or sexual immorality or greed or whatever it may be. Now that we're in Christ, do we continue? Or does the gospel change our relationship towards our sin? He says specifically, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If it's true that the more we sin, the more grace it takes to cover that sin, well then should we just sin all the more? <laughs> so that it takes all the more grace, right? Um, if, if we sin, to put it in you know, arbitrary numbers, uh, you know, 10, and, and grace is enough to cover those 10, what if we sin 100, right? All the more. And his answer to that is pretty simple. He says, by no means, which is not really the greatest translation in my opinion. It's the strongest negation available to the Greek language. Um, it's, it's in the optative mood. So a mood when it comes to language is sort of the, how well language, how close language sort of relates to reality. This is the furthest from that. It's as if to say, may the thought never enter our minds. No way, never let it be that we would think that we would sin all the more for God's grace to be shown. How can we who died to sin still live in it. We have died to that old self. We've died to that life in Adam. Something has radically changed. How could we continue in it? This relationship between the Christian and sin has been uh, a controversial one. Uh, Christians have certainly not all agreed on our relationship to sin. Um, uh, Antinomianism, so the idea that we can just sin all we want and it doesn't matter, that view has sort of plagued the Reformation, ever since the Reformation in the 1500s. By the time of uh, uh, Germany in the 1930s and 40s, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer popularized the idea of cheap grace, speaking against cheap grace, that is. This idea that we simply have to believe in Jesus and it doesn't matter whether we sin or what we do from there. Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And if you don't know anything about Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer opposed the Nazis and was eventually killed for it. But even today, in American Christianity, we have this idea of what's sometimes called easy believism. You simply say a prayer, make a decision at one point in your life, and it doesn't matter what happens after that. You continue to live the same way you did beforehand, but you said that prayer, and that automatically gives you that sort of ticket into heaven. Certainly not the idea of being dead to sin and alive in Christ. Maybe going too far in the opposite direction, some have argued that you can actually live a perfect life, a life without sin in this world, what's sometimes called full sanctification. Uh, The Wesleyan holiness movement sort of argues for this, a perfectionism, Uh, although John Wesley would never have claimed that he himself reached it, but he believed that you could reach a state of sinlessness and perfection. 
Uh, probably not the nicest thing, but Charles Spurgeon said he was talking to someone in a group who claimed that they had reached a sinless perfection. He got up from the group and left for a minute. As the guy was talking, he came back with a bucket of cold water. This is probably myth, probably a legend. Pours it over the guy's head, and he said the words that came out of his mouth showed that he had not reached perfection. <laughs> so, no, we don't reach perfection. I think that's a misunderstanding of sin. Sin affects our very motives, our very thoughts, every word from our mouth. Does a single day go by in which you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? But here's what he does picture in terms of the Christian and his or her relationship to sin. We've switched sides in the war. Before, we were on sin's side. We were with Adam, and sin was our friend, our ally. Now, we are at war. We have died to sin, and we stand utterly opposed to it. Matthew Henry says, Sin may struggle in a real believer and create him a great deal of trouble, but it shall not have dominion. It may vex him, but it shall not rule over him. We have died to sin. That's part of our old self in Adam. It lingers, but it has been fatally and mortally wounded. We will never reach righteousness in this life. We'll strive for it, grow towards it, pursue it, but we'll never actually be perfect until we're on the other side of glory. It's a battle. You and I, I mean, you, sorry, you, you and I are not on sin's side anymore. You and sin are no longer on the same team. We are at war. We've been thinking a lot about war lately, and sort of NATO and its sort of um, values of the West and Russia, and where does Ukraine fit in that? And people are getting killed now because of it. We are at war with sin, it is our enemy. If somebody is comfortable in their sin, it's a sign of unbelief. It's evidence of a lack of spiritual life. We've died to that old self. He says this is shown in baptism, verses 3 through 5. Death to sin is shown in baptism. Um, We have been baptized into Christ Jesus. By the way, the word baptism comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which sounds a lot like the English word, and it means immersion. And that's literally what the word means, to immerse something. In fact, it would be used for other things. Uh, The Pharisees would immerse their cups in their dishes in water, and they would baptize them. That's the word they would use for it. It's part of what um, Adoniram Judson, the famous missionary, uh, made him change over to become a Baptist, was studying what the actual word baptizo means. And when he came to realize it actually means to immerse into something, he realized he was wrong in his understanding of what it meant. And he says here, we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. Um, I do think he is talking here about water baptism. Uh, Not everyone agrees with that. There are different sort of scholars, but I think um, the word baptism was so commonly associated with water baptism by this time already that immediately what would come to mind is the idea that we are baptized by water. You might use the word to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or being immersed in Christ. But here's uh, Doug Moo, for example, a great uh, Roman scholar. By the date of Romans, baptized had become almost a technical expression for the rite of Christian initiation by water. And this is surely the meaning the Roman Christians would have given the word. He describes us here as being baptized into his death, which makes sense when you think of it as a burial. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. 
as we are immersed in the waters, it's as if our old self is being buried in a death. And as he describes, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too walk in newness of life. As we come out of the waters, it pictures our resurrection to this new life. Where you're now united with Jesus, both in his death to our old self, and united with him in a resurrection to a new life. It's a symbol, of course. Um, He's not saying this is what's actually happening. It pictures what is actually happening. Uh, Jesus gave us two ordinances. Um, We could even call them two skits, (laughs) two plays, right? Two short plays to reveal something, to show something. They're both, by the way, commanded by Jesus himself, not traditions that were later created by the church. There are plenty of traditions created by the church that are good. They're not bad at all, but these were specifically given to us by Jesus himself. They are to be practiced regularly, and they are practiced not individuals, but as the church together. And they are, of course, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, the interesting thing about both of those is they both point us to the gospel, directly back to the gospel. One is one time, the other is ongoing. But, and they're for all Christians. These are not meant for only some Christians. They're meant for all Christians. And they point us right back to the gospel. Baptism shows our death to an old self and burial to that old person. And as we rise out of the waters, a resurrection to a new life in union with him. And of course, the Lord's Supper shows a recognition of Christ's body broken, his blood shed, and our union with him as we remember what he has done. Now, it's a symbol, as I said. Um, it's, it, the act of baptism doesn't save us, but it points to that which does, which is this whole point. Spiritually, we have died to sin, but that's an invisible work. That's a work of God that can't be seen with human eyes. And we have been raised to a new life in union with Christ. What baptism does is shows visibly or physically what has happened spiritually to us. Um, you might say, well, then it doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. It matters like all symbols matter. It matters like a flag matters, right? The United States flag. Does that matter? Yes, because what does it represent? You notice on social media now, everybody's posting the Ukraine, Ukrainian flag all over the place. What is that saying? We stand in unity, unity symbolically with Ukraine, right? Baptism matters because what it points to. It points to the thing that does save us. So friends, before we move on, just as a way of application here, um, baptism illustrates this very point he's making in this passage. We died to sin. We should be living in a new life, united with Christ. Let your own baptism do this. Friends, let your own baptism, as you look back in your own life, be a reminder that spiritually I've died to the old self I'm united with Christ. I'm called to walk with him. By the way, this can happen at any age. I mean, God may, I have no doubt that children come to genuine faith in Jesus. Um, But we do recommend that you wait until an age that you can really grasp the meaning of it so that you can continue to look back in it for the rest of your life and remember as a parable, as a skit, as an ordinance, what God has done to bring you to faith. But not only your own baptism, every other baptism. 
That's why we encourage folks to get baptized, by the way, in a church or with their church. You don't have to. You can get baptized in a lake or a pool or in the ocean. Uh, But when you do it with your church, it's a reminder to all of us. This is what it means to die with Christ and be buried and raised to a new life in him. It's my favorite thing to do, by the way. More than weddings, more than funerals. uh, I love doing baptisms and hearing testimony and being reminded of God's grace and visibly showing what God has done spiritually. By the way, if you don't know this, uh, historically the most common day to baptize Christians is Easter Sunday, which makes perfect sense, right? Because it's the day we celebrate the resurrection. And this year, I believe we'll have a couple of baptisms coming on Easter Sunday, which is exciting for us. We've died to sin. We're resurrected to a new life. Six and seven, death to sin, de- death to sin gives us Freedom. Freedom. He says here that we know that our old self was crucified with him. Obviously, we haven't actually been crucified. Christ was, but we're in union with him. Spiritually, in our union with Christ, we have been crucified to an old self. In order, as he describes it here, that the body of sin. It's not that the body itself is evil. I mean, the body's created by God. Uh, God's made, a physical, made us physical creatures. That's a good thing. But it's used for sinful purposes. We'll look more at that, I think, next week, Lord willing. But he says the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That old self living for sin is day by day being obliterated, nullified. It's vanishing as a new you is now being restored in Christ. And he says here, you are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin is a type of slavery. We're, we're mastered by it, by our desires, by our flesh, by our rebellion. As he says, for one who has died to sin is set free from it in its enslavement. What a powerful illustration. Slavery. If you know people who struggle with addictions in particular, this is so evident. Mastered by our desires and our wants and our cravings to the point it really is so destructive to our own lives. We even call it an illness, right? Addiction is like an illness, a sickness. The truth is, all sin is like that. And we might be able to overcome a particular temptation here or there, but overall, outside of Christ, we are enslaved to our desires, what the flesh wants. If somebody is not living for God, what are they living for? You're going to eventually serve something, you're going to desire something, you're going to live for something. Is it money? Is it lust? Is it power? Is it your job? All of these temporary masters do not deliver, friends. As he describes it, there's no in-between. You're either living for God in Christ, set free from sin and its desires, or you're not, and ultimately enslaved to sin. There is no neutral territory in between. By the way, I think this is one of the most helpful mindsets to have uh, when it comes to battling sin in your own life. You're not enslaved anymore. Sin isn't gone, it's still there, but it's not your master. And you don't have to serve it as if it is. You have a new master now, and his name is Jesus, and you don't have to live in that sin. Imagine a Roman slave, right, who is set free by the law. And yet his master says, uh, certain slave, go get me a jug of water. And he runs and he gets the jug of water, and he brings it back. He says, okay, now go ahead and, and clean out my house. And he cleans his house. Now make me dinner. And finally, the slave says, what am I doing? (laughs) I'm not his slave anymore. I'm free. 
Right? We don't have to live for sin and its desires anymore. If you sin, and you and I will, you're still saved. But sin is foolish and it's destructive and it's harmful and it's unnecessary because he's given us freedom. This isn't who you are anymore. God has made you a new man. He has made you a new woman. He has changed you and he has freed you from its enslavement. Remind yourself daily that you're free in Christ. In verses 8 through 11, death to sin in union with Christ. He said one of the most glorious truths of the Christian faith here, that we are united to Jesus. We died with Christ, and so we believe we will also live with him. Not just for the rest of our lives in this world, but for all eternity. If he loves you, if he's united to you in this life, he's not going to sort of throw you aside when your life is over. He will carry you into eternity. Just as we know that Christ is raised, and he was raised historically. By the way, we're right on the verge of Lent, which begins this week, the beginning of that 40 days in preparation for Easter. We've got some great plans. We'll talk about that later. Christ is raised never to die again. By the way, Jesus rose people from the dead in his ministry. He rose Lazarus. He rose Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, which we don't know, people don't know usually as much. But when he rises from the dead, it's something different. He rises in incorruptible flesh. He rises with a spiritual body. And death has no dominion over him ever again. And we in union with Christ will one day rise. He died to sin. Now by that, it doesn't mean his own sin, of course. He died as a sin offering. He died in our place as the one who bore our sin. That's how he died to sin. And never to die again. In the life he now lives, he lives to God. Reference to the Father. Jesus lived in intimate love, devotion, fellowship with the Father. And so we should consider ourselves dead to sin. Verse 11. But alive in Christ Jesus. Again, this is a reference to our union with Christ. Uh, The Bible again and again describes the Christian life as one united to Jesus. And it's talking here about a spiritual unity. Oftentimes he's described as in us. And we are in him. (laughs) Uh, Meaning he is in us by his Holy Spirit who dwells within his people in a very mystical way. And we are in him, meaning we are in the kingdom, the sphere of Christ and his lordship. By the way, the only illustration of the Trinity that actually works, (laughs) is my opinion, is the one that Jesus himself gave us. We try all these other analogies or illustrations of the Trinity. They're not very good because they have limitations. So you probably heard of the three-leaf clover, or maybe the egg with its shell, yolk, and white, or maybe ice, water, and steam. Those will all fall apart because they don't fully represent what it means for God to be one and yet three persons. There's only one illustration that actually kind of works. And I know that because Jesus himself gave it to us, and that is the church. The church is one. We are spiritually united as one people, and yet we do not lose our personalities, our individuality within our union. And so it is with God. But in the same context in which he talks about our unity, he talks about our union with himself. This is John 17, 20-23. Listen to what Jesus says. This is his high priestly prayer for his people. He says, I do not ask for the apostles only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. 
don't know if you know that. Jesus prayed for you, specifically, you and me. Because we're the ones who believe through the word of the apostles. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We are spiritually united to God. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them. In you and me. That they may be perfectly one. So that the world may know that you have sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Now I don't pretend to fully understand what it means to be united to Jesus. I think there's something mysterious here, and I'm okay with that. They say as a Christian, you should have a nice big category called mystery <laughs> and leave it there, right? We don't have to have an exact technical explanation of this. I don't have a full answer as to how our union with Christ works, but I can say this, I daily experience it. I daily enjoy union with the Lord Jesus. Friends, let it spur you on to leave sin behind and pursue God. Christ in you and you in him. And when you sin, take courage. God isn't done with you yet. (laughs) He's at work shaping and molding and transforming you for eternity. When we read the scriptures, when we pray together, when we worship, we are enjoying our union with our Savior. We're not just reading and studying a book. We're not just doing some ritual called prayer. We're not just singing songs. We are enjoying the fact that we are spiritually and mysteriously united with our Savior. And take confidence that this union is eternal. is isn't going to throw you off at the end of it. You are his and you are his forever. We have died to sin in Jesus Christ. You know, interestingly enough, the more a Christian matures in the faith the more sinful they become. You say, wait a minute, isn't that the opposite of what you just said, (laughs) Pastor Rick? And what I mean by that, of course, is the more clearly we see our sin, the more ugly, the more deep, the more pervasive it appears to us. And the more we remember how great is Christ who has paid for our sin. And I have died to that sin in him and I'm called to live for him. Has this actually worked? I mean, someone might say, this is some really interesting teaching, Pastor Rick, but I mean, are Christians really dead to sin? Um, Are we any less sinful than everybody else? I mean, is this true? And if you listen to things like social media and Twitter and things like that, you're going to probably say, no, it isn't. Christians are just as bad. Or maybe even say, Christians are even worse, right? (laughs) You almost get the impression Christians are even more hypocritical and more evil or whatever than the rest of the world. But it's interesting to actually look at the data. Is it true when you actually look at the facts, not what so-and-so believes or what this popular Twitter guy holds to or whatever? Is there any difference living the Christian life? This is uh, Josh Howerton. He's a pastor in Lake Point Church. And uh, he sort of compares the culture to the actual data In each of these, he gives sort of the source. I'm not going to give you all that necessarily, unless you want it at some point. 
So the culture says evangelicals aren't really pro-life, they're just pro-birth. They don't care about babies after they're born. What does the data show? That conservative Christians adopt more children than any other population segment. More than doubling the norm. Culture says the church is sexually repressive and it's anti-sex. The church going conservative Christians are in a category of the most fulfilling sex lives. The church is emotionally repressive and destructive to your mental health. What does the data show? Regular church attendance dramatically improves your mental health. The only people in the U.S. whose mental health improved in 2020 was regular church attenders. Evangelicals don't care about the poor. They just care about political power. The data. Church-going Christians are exponentially more generous to the poor with both time and money than the rest of the population. The church is oppressive to women, a tool of the abusive patriarchy, and creates toxic relationships for women. The data, conservative Christian gender traditional church-going women are in the happiest relationships in America, and abuse decreases around 50% in this category. The church is morally backwards and bad for society. This is his words. The church is awesome for society. And the higher the church attendance, the lower the burglary, larceny, robbery, assault, homicide, etc. According to the statistics. The church is irrelevant or ideologically and emotionally harmful to raising children. The data regular church attendance is significantly decreases all three of the big three dangers of adolescence. Depression, substance abuse, and sexual promiscuity. The church doesn't help your marriage. The divorce rates are the same. The data, conservative Christians who attend church regularly are 35% less likely to divorce. Church is a waste of time. The data, regular church attendance literally gives you more time, increasing life expectancy up to seven years. (laughs) You literally live longer for those who are in Christ. Or a different study, I won't go into all the details, by Rodney Starks, a famous sociologist. He looked at religious people in general, so this isn't specifically Christians. But again, they're the primary source of charitable fund giving. They dominate the ranks of blood donors and other pro-social behavior, are much less likely to commit crimes, far more likely to donate their money and time to socially beneficial programs and to be active in civic affairs. They enjoy uh, superior mental health. And again, this is not from a Christian perspective. He's just sort of looking at the statistics, enjoy physical health, read more, read more than their irreligious friends, and on and on, more apt to marry, less likely to divorce, and so forth. We have died to sin and are alive in Jesus. We're not perfect, not even close, right? We're still sinners, of course. But has Christ made a difference? Undeniably. Here's the calling, friends. You've died to sin. Now leave it behind. And move on to far greater things. Knowing that you have a God who loves you. Who wants your time, your fellowship, your mission. Matthew Henry said, What can be a stronger motive against sin than the love of Christ? Shall we sin against so much goodness and such love? Pray with me.
Gracious Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have in Christ and only in Christ died to sin. Doesn't mean we don't sin anymore, Lord. Of course, you know our hearts better than we do. But it is our enemy now. And we stand with you. And Father, in this congregation, no doubt there are people struggling with all different types of temptation, all different types of sin, um, no doubt guilt and shame over our sins. Help us to find our joy and hope and forgiveness in Jesus. And help us to move forward motivated by the love of Christ for us as your people to walk in newness of life. In Jesus we pray. Amen.